On Monday, we talked about worldviews. I told you that everybody has a worldview, but I also told you that many people are not aware that they have a worldview, nor are they conscious of the content of that worldview. Consequently, a great many people have problems with the Christian faith, not because of ideas that they hold consciously, but they have problems with the Christian faith because of ideas, concepts that are functioning underneath the surface, uh, below the level of consciousness. Now, the world is full of competing worldviews. Christianity is one of those worldviews. What do we do in the face of these conflicts among all these worldviews? Do we just sit back and say, well, that's the way it is? Everybody has their own worldview. I have mine, and it's just a matter of whatever worldview you happen to accept uh, for yourself at the moment. Well, of course, if you were paying attention Monday, you know that I told you that there are three tests that can be applied and that should be applied to any worldview. Do you remember what those tests were? Let's see if we can remember. Don't, don't speak out here because we, somebody might think you're saying hallelujah and then we would get a little excited here. But the first test that any worldview must satisfy is the test of reason, the test of logic, the law of non-contradiction. The second test that any worldview must satisfy is the test of experience. It must fit with what we know about the world outside of us. A worldview that conflicted with scientific data would be in serious trouble. But there's not only our experience of the outer world, you'll recall, a worldview must also fit our experience of the inner world. And that's where so many of these non-Christian systems fall short. And then the third test of any worldview is the test of practice. Anybody must ask, is this a worldview that I can live and that I can live coherently and consistently and meaningfully? And we pointed out to you on Monday how Francis Schaeffer pointed out that non-Christian worldviews always require their adherents to cheat. Because if you're going to live a decent life in this world, you've got to borrow elements, that is, if you're a non-Christian, you've got to borrow elements from the non-Christian worldview. Today, I want to talk to you about the first of those three tests. I won't say anything more about the last two. If you're interested in reading more about this material, you can get help from my book called Faith and Reason, which may be in the library or maybe in the bookstore. Or I have a new book that's coming out this fall that Zondervan will publish, and it is titled Worldviews in Conflict. So today, if your mother asks, if your mother calls you this afternoon and says, what blessed you in chapel this morning, you can tell her that you heard a message about the law of non-contradiction. And that will please your mother greatly, I'm sure, because that's what we're going to talk about. Listen to me. One of the most frequently heard objections to Christianity is the claim that Christianity is irrational. Many of you, no doubt, have heard that charge. Now, I will concede that it is not hard to find Christians who support that impression. All right? Some of you may even support the impression that Christianity is irrational. But it is my argument, and I hope I leave every one of you persuaded on the truth of this before we're through today, 
it is my argument that when you understand Christianity properly, properly understood, the Christian worldview has more respect for the laws of reason. It has more respect for the laws of logic than any other worldview that's floating around out there. Last May, I told you I was, I was in Russia, and one of my presentations to Russian uh, intellectuals was a variation of what you heard me talk about on Monday. I talked about worldviews and the Marxist worldview and the Christian worldview. And afterwards, a lady came up to me, a young lady, who introduced herself as a professor of philosophy in Russia, and she said, I like much of what you said, but there is something that I disagree strongly with you over, and I want to talk about it. So we set up a time when she and I could meet, and we had to have a translator there because I didn't speak Russian, obviously, and she didn't speak English. So the three of us, this Russian philosopher and I and our translator, went into a room, and I said, okay, what's your problem? What don't you like about what you heard me say today? And here's what she said. She said, you have too much respect for reason, for the laws of logic. And I said, thank you. No finer compliment has ever been given me. She said, you're a rationalist. Now, for the next half hour in our discussion, I tried to figure out where she was coming from. And I must admit that for the first half hour, I thought she was an old, hardline uh, Marxist. I thought her repudiation of logic had to do with her commitment to what we call uh, the dialectic in communist thinking. And it wasn't until near the end of our first session together that I realized that her, her opposition to the laws of logic came from the fact that she had become a convert to a kind of new age system that is sweeping uh, across Russian intellectual circles these days. She was into new age thinking. She thought that ultimate truth and the highest reality and God all reside above logic. Well, once I discovered that, I knew what my task was. I had to persuade this lady about the importance of the laws of logic. And let me say this to any of you who have New Age friends. You will never get to first base with someone who is an advocate of New Age thinking until you get that person to recognize the universality and the necessity of the law of non-contradiction. Properly understood, no worldview in existence has more respect for the laws of logic than the Christian worldview. I don't know how much study you've done of religious liberalism. It's all around us. Some of it is found in some Christian colleges. But you know what my study of religious liberalism has taught me? It's how suspicious those religious liberals are of the law of non-contradiction. Right now I'm working on a book on a new heresy called Religious Pluralism. This is the belief, and it is, spreading, it is spreading quickly through American religious circles and through some missionary circles as well. It is the belief that every religion in the world is an adequate and a reliable path to God. Now, the catch is that all of the religions of the world make logically conflicting claims. 
If the laws of logic prevail in this world, it is impossible for all of those truth, for all of those propositions to be true. And so here's what you find every religious pluralist doing. They try to get rid of the law of non-contradiction. They try to, to separate religion from logic. It is, an, it is a step in their path of dismantling Christian orthodoxy, of trying to uh, establish their argument that all religions are equally valid approaches to God. So religious liberals really don't have any respect for the laws of logic. And you want to know something else? There are lots of Christian conservatives who don't have the respect for the laws of logic that they should have either. There are a lot of us who've been trained in a kind of super pietistic environment where we think that our minds and the laws of logic have no connection with what goes on in our heart. Well, I want to, if some of you are like that, I want to commend you for your pietism, but it's a mindless Christianity that you're representing. There are also some conservative Christians who want to tell us, and I'll, you know, I'll name some people here, a man whom I admire greatly was Cornelius Van Til, who taught apologetics for many years at Westminster Theological Seminary. There's come out of that uh, way of thinking a whole school of thought associated with the theonomist movement in Christianity today that tells us the same basic claim. God exists above the laws of logic. Let me tell you this. If God exists above the laws of logic, then God is unknowable. And that is not the faith that God has revealed to us in his word. Christianity has an intrinsic relationship and concern with logic. Now we're ready for the technology. We're going to put on a slide. It's the only slide for today. I want you to applaud the advance in technology over what we were doing Monday. Let me see the slide, all right? Because what I'm going to do is explain to you what the law of non-contradiction is. There it is. Tremendous. At the top of the slide, you have a definition of the law of non-contradiction. You might write it down. Someday you might want to use it. The law of non-contradiction says that A cannot be B and non-B at the same time and in the same sense. Now, let me explain that. The letter A is a variable. It stands for anything whatsoever. And B is also a variable so that we could substitute for those variables and get things like this. A proposition, A, cannot be both true and false at the same time and in the same sense. Okay? I believe that. <laughs> I hope you do too. An object, A, cannot be both round and square at the same time and in the same sense. That's what the law of non-contradiction says. But now we need a little more help. So look at my beautiful diagram. Notice what we have below the definition is a larger rectangle and a smaller rectangle. Notice the smaller rectangle that we've called B. I have to be careful that I don't strangle myself here. B, that smaller box, represents any class of things whatsoever. And we will just arbitrarily call it B. It could be the class of all human beings. It could be the class of all trees. It could be the class of all round objects. It could be the class of all red objects, whatever. 
Notice the rest of the, the bigger box represents the class of non-B. Now, we have a name for the class of non-B. We call it the complementary class. C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y. Complementary class. Now, what that boils down to is this. The class of non-B includes everything else in the universe that is not a member of B. Let me repeat that. If something is a member of non-B, the class of non-B, then it is anything else in the universe that is not a member of B. So let's let B stand for the class of all human beings. Then the class of non-B stands for, includes, trees, dogs, rivers, mountains, stars, planets, clouds, Anything else in the universe that is not B is non-B. Simple. Now, what the law of non-contradiction reduces to is this claim. If something is B, then it cannot at the same time and in the same sense be non-B. It can't be. <laughs> I made a joke. Now, Students at this point, students at this point often ask this question. Is there any way of proving that the law of non-contradiction is true? Now, there was an ancient Greek philosopher named Aristotle who examined that question, and here was his answer. He said, technically, you can't prove the law of non-contradiction. And he had a pretty good reason why he said that. You can't prove the law of non-contradiction because any proof for anything must use the law of non-contradiction. You see? And so if you tried to prove the law of non-contradiction, you'd have to assume the law of non-contradiction in that proof, and thus you'd be reasoning in a circle. You'd be begging a question. So Aristotle said, strictly speaking, there is no kind of direct proof for the law of non-contradiction. But he then quickly added, there is plenty of reason to accept the law of non-contradiction for indirect reasons. There is not a direct proof for it, but there, is, uh, there are plenty of indirect proofs. And here are his examples. Aristotle said, unless you assume the law of non-contradiction, you cannot think and communicate effectively. Effective communication of ideas rests upon the assumption that the law of non-contradiction is true. Here's why. Whenever you try to communicate or whenever you try to think, you use ideas, you use words. And unless the word, a word that you happen to be using in this particular proposition means something different from its complement, you can't possibly communicate meaning to anybody else. I mean, let's take a simple proposition. Socrates is a man. All right, I'm communicating some truth to you. But what does the word man mean? I would suggest to you that it means something and it cannot mean some other things. If it's meaning, uh, if, if, if that proposition places Socrates as a member in the class of B, 
then Socrates cannot also be a member of the class of non-being. If Socrates is a man, then he cannot also be a horse, a dog, a tree, a star, a moon, whatever. So, Aristotle said, you cannot think or communicate effectively unless you presuppose the law of non-contradiction. Secondly, Aristotle said, you cannot act in a significant way without presupposing the law of non-contradiction. If there is no difference between B and non-B, then there is no difference between drinking milk and drinking arsenic. But there is a difference. If you doubt my word, experiment at the lunch table today, all right? If there is no difference between B and non-B, then there is no difference between driving on the right side of I-5 and driving on the left side of I-5. If there's no difference between B and non-B, there's no difference between going to see your friend Susie Bell, who lives at 259-whatever street in, um, in Anaheim, and going up and kissing the first person you meet at 259 uh, that same street in um, Newhall. All right. Let me tell you about a student I knew. This student had, was caught by the IRS for not filing income tax returns for several years. And when he got called in by the IRS auditor, he came up with a very original excuse. He said to her, she said, I understand you haven't filed a tax return for five years. He said, yes, but let me give you my reason. She said, I'm waiting for your reason. He said, I became convinced five years ago that the law of non-contradiction doesn't apply and that there's no difference between B and non-B. And she said, yes. And thus, he said, there's no difference between filing a return and not filing a return. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. He was telling the IRS off using philosophy, see? Well, the IRS agent thought about it for a minute, and then she said, well, I'm glad to hear that. Then you won't think there's any difference between being in jail and not being in jail. <laughs> Friends, you, you disavow the law of non-contradiction either in a nuthouse or in some religious seminaries that I know about, but you cannot disavow the law of non-contradiction in the real world. Now, what I want you to see for the rest of my presentation are how some worldview beliefs that otherwise intelligent people think that they can use to reject Christianity fail the test of reason. And I, but before I do that, I want to give you a fancy word. I love fancy words. All right. Every now and then it helps to know a fancy word. Write this down on a piece of paper. Add this to your vocabulary. Use this against one of your professors this afternoon. All right? The first word is self, S-E-L-F, and then dash. Self-referentially, you spell that for yourself. And the third word is absurd, self-referentially absurd. I love that term. A self-referentially absurd belief is a belief that turns out to be nonsense when you apply it to itself. It is a belief that is logically self-destructive. It is self-defeating. Here's my first example of a self-referentially absurd belief. 
We call it skepticism. Now, skepticism is the belief that no propositions are true. If you ever run into a skeptic, and probably you won't, because usually you run into these people only at cocktail parties after they've had a little too much to drink, all right? But suppose you're here. Suppose we're, we're at a cocktail party and I'm drinking my... <laughs> I'm drinking my water. All right, let's let's see if this is water. Mm. Oh, I tell you, that tastes so good. <laughs> Suppose we're at a cocktail party and we meet a, a skeptic. All right, and he says no propositions are true. And usually these people are very arrogant and cocky and self-assured. No propositions are true. Now, here's what you say to a skeptic. All you do, all you do is ask that skeptic one question. That's all you do. You say, is your proposition true? See? He has just said, no propositions are true. Now, you're saying to him, is that proposition true? Now, he has only two possible answers. He can say, yes, of course, my proposition is true. But remember... The proposition that he's claiming is true is the proposition that no propositions are true. He's refuting, he's, he's contradicting himself. So the only other choice your skeptical friend can do is say, of course, my proposition is not true. At which point you walk away and say, well, thank you. I'm not going to bother refuting someone who admits that he doesn't know what he's talking about. See? Skepticism is a self-referentially absurd position. Let me give you another example. This is a true story. This really happened. A former student of mine went to a large liberal church in downtown Bowling Green, Kentucky. I taught philosophy there for 27 years. And the sermon of the Sunday dealt with this claim. All religious beliefs are equally true. The epitome of religious tolerance, all right? So here's this preacher. Happened to be a Methodist, but it could have been a Baptist. Who knows? Anyway, liberal Methodist. All religious beliefs are equally true. And he's really getting tuned into this thing. And then after church, the preacher's at the front of the church shaking hands. Everybody's saying, wonderful sermon, Pastor. Wonderful sermon. And my student came up and he said, Preacher, wait a minute. Before I leave... I just want to make sure I understood you correctly. You believe that anybody's religious belief is true no matter what it is. The preacher said, that's right, you got it. I swear to you, this is true. <laughs> my student looked at the preacher and he said, well, my religious belief is that you're going to hell. Self-referential absurdity, friends. Logically self-defeating. You want to know what that preacher had the gall to say? I mean, clearly he was on the he was on the he was he was he was backed into a corner. The preacher said, I guess I made one mistake. Everybody's religious beliefs are true except yours. Oh, you've got to watch these relativists. You really do, because sooner or later, they're going to stop being relativists, and they're going to find out, they're going to tell you that somebody's wrong, all right? Now, let me quickly give you some other examples. 
On Monday, I talked about naturalism. Remember naturalism? This is the basic worldview of most people in the West who reject Christianity. It's not the only opponent of Christianity in the West these days. Remember, there are others. There's Eastern thought, Eastern pantheism. There's New Age thought. But naturalism, if, 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 if one of your friends is an atheist or a liberal, doesn't believe in miracles, chances are he's a, mir- he's a naturalist. Listen, naturalism is a self-referentially absurd position. Let me show you why. Now, this may, this may be a little hard to grasp, but you can't expect to understand perhaps everything I say, or maybe I can't be expected to explain it all in, in a brief compass. But remember, naturalism is characterized by a closed box. Remember that? Now, I believe, this is my own view, but it's a great view because, boy, does it, does it save me from the errors of the naturalist. I believe that there are certain things, we call them transcendent standards, that exist in the box and also exist outside the box. The moral law is an example of something that, think of this as a line, a vertical line that starts inside the box and goes outside the box. Because, you see, the moral law is something that we confront in our inner life every day. It tells us what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. But if the moral law was, were completely constrained within the box, it would have no objective reference. It would have no objective relevance. It would be per, purely personal or subjective. Well, there's something else that must exist both within and outside the box, and that would be the laws of logical inference. I think the laws, in my worldview, the laws of logic are represented by a line that starts inside the box and goes outside the box. What that means is the laws of logical inference are different from the laws of physical necessity that characterize the world of material objects. The laws of logical inference are transcendent. They apply universally and necessarily, and thus they are independent of the purely causal laws that operate inside the box. Hence, I as a Christian can appeal to logical arguments to defend my positions, but no consistent naturalist can appeal to logical laws to defend his naturalism. And the reason is, he doesn't believe there are any transcendent logical laws. Remember, a naturalist is a person who thinks the only things that exist, exist inside the box. Now, here's the problem. Go up to anybody that you know who's a naturalist and say, give me an argument for your position. Can you prove naturalism? And without thinking, 99 out of 100 naturalists will start to give you an argument. They will start to use logic. That's the time to rub it in and say, hey, wait a minute. Where did you suddenly find these logical laws in your worldview? They don't exist outside the box. Hence, there are no transcendent logical laws for you to appeal to. Hence, you cannot reason for your position. To make it simpler, perhaps, I can give you an example of radical feminism. A radical feminist is a person who believes 
uh, well, this is one element of most radical feminism. Most radical feminists reject the laws of logic as a male chauvinist plot. They really do. If you're a true feminist, a radical, weirdo feminist, <laughs> what you appeal to is women's into women's intuition is feminine. You see, logic is male. Male. That's to be discredited. Last summer, I met a girl. I was at the Campus Crusade summer meetings in Colorado, and I met a girl who's taking a master's degree in feminism. She works. She's on Campus Crusade staff. She's taking a master's degree in radical feminism at some college in the East. I said, why, why would you do that? She says, because I feel called to minister to these people. I said, okay, makes sense. She was in a radical feminist class when her professor said just this. We feminists have no use for logic. That's male garbage, all right? Afterwards, this Campus Crusade staff member went up to her professor and said, if you repudiate logic, then you cannot give me any arguments for your position at all, can you? And moreover, you cannot produce any arguments against my Christian belief, can you? The, the professor had never realized that. That's a Rush Limbaugh trick there, incidentally, all right? I'll give you my other Rush Limbaugh imitation here. That's... The professor had never realized that once she disavows logic, she not only is incapable of proving her own position, she can't argue against the Christian. So you know, this professor was honest. You know what she said? She said, you're right. You're right. I cannot argue against your position, and I cannot argue for my position, so all I can say is, I don't like your Christianity. Oh. You pay $10,000 a year to take a master's degree from a professor whose, whose whole argument against Christianity is that she doesn't like it? Oh my goodness, I'm overwhelmed. I continue with my parade of anti-intellectuals, all right? Misology. Positivism. Listen to this one. A positivist is a person who believes that the only beliefs that you're warranted in accepting are those that have been proven by the scientific method. Lots of people think that way. The only things worthy of belief are beliefs that have been proven by the scientific method. Now, stop. I want dead silence here. I want you to tell me how to refute the positivist. You ask the positivist one question, and that one question is this. Where's the scientific evidence for your positivist thesis, friend? You get that? See, you shouldn't believe anything that can't be proven by the scientific method. That's the thesis. Where's the scientific evidence for that thesis? If beliefs unsupported by the scientific method are nonsense, then positivism is nonsense. That's the point to roll out the language. You say to your positivist friend, my, when did you commit yourself to a self-referentially absurd position like that? But do it with a smile, see? Do it with a smile. 
Deconstructionism. Write this down. Deconstructionism. Some of you may never have heard that word before. Give thanks the next time you pray that you've never heard that word before. This is a movement that is sweeping English departments across the country. If some of you go on to do graduate work in English, the odds are 9 out of 10 you're going to end up studying with at least one professor who is a deconstructionist. Now, what is this? <laughs> now, you're not going to believe this, all right? Suppose you're all sitting in, my, in English 601 at the University of California at Santa Barbara. That would be a pretty good place to run into this. This is English 601, all right? And I am your English professor. And the first thing I... And let's say it's a course in Shakespeare. And I want to introduce you to a deconstructionist analysis of Shakespeare's writings. And so the first thing I say to you, and I might even read it out of a book. Maybe it's a book that I wrote, okay? This is the deconstructionist thesis. It is impossible ever to know the meaning of any written text. It is impossible. I swear to you, this is the truth. I'm not making this up. This is deconstructionism. It is impossible ever to know the meaning of any written text. And I've just read that. All right? I've just read that. Now, here's what deconstructionists do. They begin with that starting point. That's their basic presupposition. And then, then they start you reading Shakespeare or Milton. And you want to know what? There's no way to know what Shakespeare really meant. There's no way to know what Milton really meant. There is no way to know what the Bible really means. The essence of deconstructionism is total nihilism and subjectivity. The mean, you're going to go to college somewhere, you're going to go to graduate school somewhere, you're going to pay 20, 20 grand to have an English professor teach you that the meaning of a text is whatever it means to you. <laughs> Boy, just think, if only your professors here were deconstructionists, right? You could get away with murder. The meaning of a text is whatever it means. Boy, think of taking a Bible course here under those rules, right? You don't have to worry about exegesis and the grammatical historical method. You can read into it anything you want. I have a friend who, who gives tips to people who, who take English courses from people like this. They say, whenever your teacher asks you to explain Moby Dick, come up with the wildest, crazy idea you can, and you'll get an A for the course. And so when she was asked from one of these professors to tell what Moby Dick meant, she said, I think Moby Dick symbolizes Ireland. <laughs> Who's to prove you wrong, all right? Now listen. Deconstructionism is a self-referentially absurd position. Actually, there's more... You see, if no one can know the meaning of any text, then no one can know the meanings of the books that articulate the deconstructionist thesis. These relativists always want to be the one exception Everything is relative except their holy, sacred word. They are God. 
If it's impossible to know the meaning of any written text, then it is also impossible to know the meaning of any oral statement as well. That means everything your teacher says is just what it means to you. Now, there's more to deconstructionism than just self-defeating nonsense. Deconstructionism is actually part of the broader agenda of the new Marxists who control so much of American higher education. 10,000 American university professors claim to be Marxists. But what threatens us today is not the old kind of Marxism-Leninism, which they agree has now been falsified. and It's a new, more subtle kind of Marxism in which these people have a new agenda, which is to deprive you of any objective standards of truth, of right and wrong, of meaning, to leave you totally at the mercy of a demagogic professor who will try to incull within you dissatisfaction for everything that you presently believe and try to turn you into a nihilist who is then fair game for the latest Marxist propaganda that comes along. It's part of an agenda, but it's an agenda that is linked to nonsense. If you or I, and now I'm getting ready to close, if you or I were in a class of an academic professor who wrote on the blackboard, two plus two equals five, we dismiss this guy as a crank, as incompetent. But what I'm trying to suggest to you is in the academic world today, in the world of intellectual ideas, we have thousands of people who are literally saying two plus two equals blue. And you know what? Everybody is responding. Here you, two plus two equals blue. And students are saying, that's deep. <laughs> the administrators of these professors are saying, that's profound. You know, we got to promote this guy. We got to give this guy tenure. He's not just saying the ordinary run of the mill thing anymore, is he? I guess not. Who are the real enemies of reason in academia today? They aren't the Christians. No matter where you go on to school or where you go on to life, God is expecting you to hold up the banner not only of the gospel, but he's expecting you to hold up the banner of truth and reason. Because it is the people who are the enemies of reason who think, number one, that we're the irrationalists, but who are really using their own opposition to reason as the crazy basis for their repudiation of the Christian faith. Now, I don't know where you stand in relationship to your studies. I don't know how much attention you've paid to logic. But maybe it's time that you begin to pay a little more attention to this stuff. Maybe it's time that you begin to do a little more reading and a little more preparation. That in addition to your knowledge of the Bible, Maybe you get a little knowledge of philosophy and maybe a little more knowledge of economics and some of these other things. Because God expects us to be thoroughly prepared people to stand for the whole counsel of truth. Now join me in a word of prayer. Our Father, help us to be friends of reason. The laws of logic are not things we need to be afraid of. They are our allies. They are our friends. Help us to get tuned into some of these techniques that we've talked about. 
And we'll thank you for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.